their Bibles and um, meet me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. We are continuing our series through Mark's Gospel. Last week, I said that we were going to move beyond verses 1 through 11, and we would look at actually the upper room, the, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And as the week went on, um, there was one particular line in last week's sermon, or the text, last week's text, that I simply, even when I was preparing to preach last week, uh, it just really jumped off the page at me. And uh, I've got a fellow, uh, a fellow uh, pastor friend of mine, and they're actually preaching through the book of Mark, and we're, we're almost identical in where we are. And um, I sent him a text, and I said, hey, who's, who's preaching Mark 14, 1 through 11? And, and uh, he said, well, one of the other pastors on the staff is preaching it, but he said, uh, have you noticed verse 8? And I said, absolutely. And I said, it's really a sermon unto itself. And so um, I want to come back to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 that we looked at last week. And I want us to look at it again, but what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to kind of narrow our focus down to something that Jesus said concerning this woman who we know uh, not from Mark's gospel, but from John's gospel is a woman whose name is Mary of Bethany. So let's read all 11 verses and then we'll, we'll point out the uh, specific aspect of this story that we want to look at this morning. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Remember last week we said that that word indignantly, uh, in the, uh, it has a word picture with it that means to snort like a horse. I mean, they were infuriated uh, by what has happened. And, and not only did they say that one time, but if you actually look at the grammar structure there, you'd realize that it's, it's saying that they said, their indignation, their snorting continued over and over and over and over again. For this ointment could have been sold for, for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Matter of fact, if you weren't here last week, 300 denarii, a denarii is the equivalent of one day's wage. So this lady gave up 300 days worth of wage, or approximately one year's worth of salary. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her so? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now here's what I want you to see. This is the key. This is the verse I want to focus in on, and in particular, I want to focus in on the A part of the verse. She has done what she could do. She has done what she could do. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so this morning I want to preach to you. Oh, let me finish. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want to talk to you this morning about uh, he did, she did. He did, she did. And in particular, I want us to focus in on this A part of chapter 14, verse 8. She did what she could do. And so if I was going to summarize the, the sermon this morning in one sentence that you could take away from you today and somebody asked, well, hey, what did the preacher preach on Easter Sunday? You could say something like this. She did what she could do because Jesus did for her what she could not do. She did what she could do because Jesus did for her what she could not do. What could she not do? Because there doesn't seem to be anything from the text that tells us that she, was, uh, she had in a, any inabilities to do anything. As a matter of fact, it seems like in the text, she is the one doing everything, and Jesus is the one who is doing nothing. But what we have to look at this morning, and, and what, what is so beautiful about studying the Bible, is that there is something going on here at the very root level that is important for us to realize because when we read such a text, what should come to our minds at the very outset is what would cause someone to sacrifice one year's of wage in an instant and in a moment for a man? How many of you would sacrifice an entire year's wage on someone in your own family. And some of us might not even sacrifice a year's wage on a family member, much less somebody that wasn't a family member, right? I mean, that's an awful big ask, right? So what prompts a woman to do such? As we celebrate Easter today, how many of us have considered this to be a celebration of what we could not do? You ever thought about Easter in that context? Easter is the celebration of what we cannot do. Jesus did for her what she could not do. What could she not do? As we celebrate Easter, we need to consider what this woman in this story knew, and that is that she could do nothing for herself. You see, we Americans don't like to confess our ineptitudes and inabilities because we live in a country that teaches us and breeds a I can do anything attitude, right? I mean, heck, that's how we were founded, right? Just dare us not to do something and we'll go and do it. Now that may that may work well in building a country, but it doesn't work well in Christianity. Our culture indoctrinate indoctrinate indoctrinates us with a mantra of work on your weaknesses until your weaknesses become your strength. Strength. 
If we possess strength enough to do what only Jesus can do, then Easter is irrelevant. It's not necessary. John Newton, who was a converted slave trader, reinforces our genuine estate in his beloved hymn that we all know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that what? Saved a what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. As beloved as those words are to many, they are believed by fewer still. Newton did not find his understanding of human nature in a dictionary, but he found his understanding of human nature in the words of Scripture. You see, the Bible tells us who we really are. It it reveals to us our true state of being. Jesus says these words in in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. He says, for you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. Those are not very encouraging adjectives to describe us, but yet, this is who we are. Like a criminal sketch artist, Paul, in his gospel, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, listen to Paul sketch out for us what it, what it looks like to be poor, pitiful, wretched, and blind. He says, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together all have become what? Worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Never have plainer words been spoken into the human hearing. And just in case you might be sitting here this morning and you say, you know what? That might describe most people, but that doesn't describe me. Paul finishes this chapter with these all too familiar words that all have sinned, all fall into that category. Why? Because all have fallen short of God's glory. You see, no one can escape the designation that Scripture has put on us this morning. Why? Because this this sin that we all have It is a condition that has been given to us through DNA. It is given to us at the moment we were conceived. David said this in Psalm 51.5. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. No one escapes sin's infiltration into their life. You, You see, you did not become a sinner the moment you sin. You sin because you have been a sinner since birth. Children in their earliest days must have their behavior corrected, right? Anybody got a perfect child, no matter how small they are? Well, that's 100%. Every time I've ever asked that question, no one's volunteered their child as 
the perfect child who does no wrong. Where, where does such behavior originate? Where does all behavior begin? Well, Jesus says and taught that it all begins in our heart. Every human being bears God's image and possesses immense dignity and value. So we're, look, I'm not trying to diminish the value and the dignity of, of human beings. Yet, though we bear His image, we do not all retain His perfection. Unfortunately, our first parents, they forfeited that position when they chose to be God rather than worship the God whose image that they bore. As a result, our first parents sinned. And we have, and we and their offspring have been sinning ever since. So let me, let me pause for about 30 seconds and answer an all-important question this morning that seems to be debated in our day. What is sin? What is sin? Well, I didn't come up with this. This I attribute to the author whose name is uh, John Piper, but John Piper gave this definition of what sin is. It is the glory of God, not honor. It is the holiness of God, not reverence. It is the greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praise. And the truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. And the faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. And the person of God, not loved. That is sin. It's a pretty good definition. There are no good people. There's no good people in this room this morning. Yes, people can do good. And we often experience goodness from other people. And we often can do good ourselves only because we are made in God's image. But because we can do good, that does not make us good. Why? Because... Even our goodness, according to the Bible, is tainted. Even our goodness is tainted. You want to know how I know that? Number one, the Bible tells me that. Our, our good works are as our righteousness, I use the biblical word, is as what? Filthy rags. I won't go into the explanation of what is meant by filthy rags, but it's filthy, trust me. But if you want to know that you're, how tainted your goodness is, just do good and be treated unjustly in your doing good, and you'll find out how good you really are. Give the man on the street who's begging for alms or money Give them some money and watch them go into the local liquor store and spend it on liquor and see what kind of reaction you have at that moment to your goodness. Even your goodness is tainted. No one is good. I hope you feel the hopelessness in your efforts to earn God's favor through your goodness. Do you see that even your good works are not and will never be sufficient? And you may say, well, Pastor, why do you keep bringing up, why, why are you going down this whole road of good works and we're not good? Why? Because I was densely Bible-saturated part of the entire world. I, there was a study that was done several years ago uh, in, a, in a magazine called Outreach Magazine. And Outreach Magazine came out 
and, and listed the top 20 most Christian areas in all of the United States. And do you know what they determined to be the most saturated geographical location of Christianity in all of the United States? The corridor of I-20 between Tuscaloosa, Alabama and Anniston, Alabama. It is the most Christianized area in the world. And you may say, well, that's a good place to live. Not necessarily. Why? Because Jesus is all the time talking to good religious people who think they're on their way to heaven, and Jesus says, you're not. Oh, it's good to be where the Bible is preached. But remember what the Puritans said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You can sit under good Bible preaching, and if you don't respond to it, it'll do nothing but harden your heart, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened back in the book of Exodus. Or you can sit under God's teaching and preaching of the Scripture, and your heart be melted and changed forever. But listen, you cannot sit under Bible teaching and not be affected. The Bible is a book of good news because it is a book that reveals to us the bad news of our condition. That's why I'm giving you so much bad news right now. Why? Because the bad news, the good news won't be so good if you don't know how bad it really is and how bad you really are. Listen to one of the script listen to one of the scriptures most religious people describe humanity's actual condition. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul Paul was super religious. Yeah, he murdered Christians, but if you hear Paul's own personal testimony, Paul says there there was nobody when it came to keeping the law, that means being religious than I was. But yet, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, as far as I know, there's no Jews in the house this morning. You're a Gentile in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcisions, which is made by hands in the flesh. Remember that you were, here's here's what's important, that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's what Easter is all about. It's about the God who fixes our separation issue. He's fixed our separation issue. This text means that he was, that Jesus Excuse me. When God tells us that our sins have separated us, He's not bidding us to come up to Him. Instead, He is telling us that He is coming down to us. Here's the essential difference between Christianity and all other religions of the world. Is that you if you talk to enough people, people will say, Look, you Christians, you have your way to God, and we have our way to God. But listen, our way is not like their way. Christianity is the the religion that says that there is only one way to God. Why? Because all other religions say you must go up to God, and Christianity, true Christianity, is the only one that says God has come down to us. Oh, 
All other paths are bottom up while Christianity is uniquely top down. In the person of Jesus Christ, only God can span the separation and bring us back to himself. Why? Because only Jesus possesses the necessary qualifications for a savior. Let me talk about that just for a moment. What's the qualification? Well, he's, he's born of a virgin. Look at what Genesis 3.15 says, that uh, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That Women don't have seed. So this already lets us know that the birth of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, is going to come by supernatural means. He is going to be conceived of a virgin. He is going to be born without sin. Why? Because secondly, he needs to be born without sin because Hebrews 4.15 says uh, that uh, he, he, he would be tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. So Jesus is born sinless, and then he lives a sinless life. And why is that necessary? It's necessary because that is the qualification for eternal life, is that you must be sinless in order to get into heaven. Listen at Pilate's own testimony of Jesus in John 19, 6. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Jesus is tempted in every way like us, yet he never sinned. He was accused of sin, yet no charge ever levied against him was proven credible. He was, as John described him, the spotless lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And possessing the proper credentials to save, Jesus went to the cross, and God required an innocent to die for the criminals. He required sinlessness to die for the utterly sinful, and God's wrath against sinners could not be satisfied, could only be satisfied by crushing his son who had never participated in sin. The cross of Christ saves us because God's wrath has been satisfied. Look at these two verses, one from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament. Look at what it says. This is, this is the crowd from the ground mocking Jesus. And they said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Now watch, if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Listen, Isaiah 53, 10, which is a whole chapter on the crucifixion. This is what God says about this event. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him, uh, uh, God did not rescue his son because he was pleased by him. That what they were saying from the cross, look, let's see if God will rescue him and take pleasure in him. And yet God had already said several hundred years before that I will crush my son and in crushing him, I will take pleasure in that. Why? Because the only way that sinful people can be made right with a holy God is if a sinless sacrifice is offered on their behalf. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, it is well-pleasing to the Father. The Father is satisfied with what Jesus is doing. His wrath is being satisfied against we who are sinners, we who can do no good, we who cannot make ourselves right with God. And Jesus is in our place for our sin. 
To summarize, Adam failed his test in the Garden of Eden and died while Jesus passed his test in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because of that, we live. Now let me get on to some better news. It says she has done what she could do because Jesus did for her what she could not do. Listen, this, this woman that Jesus had encountered, she is acting so extravagantly because Jesus had already told her her sin was forgiven. If we followed the story of Mary of Bethany throughout the New Testament, we would find that this woman had had this encounter with Jesus and that her sins had been forgiven and that this was an opportunity for her in front of everyone to express to everyone how deep her love for Jesus really was. She, she was so moved by what Christ had already done for her that this was the only expression that she could give to reveal how deep her love for him was. But listen to me this morning. Here's something that kind of jumped out at me this week about this woman. Listen, Jesus, Jesus has not yet died. He hasn't even gone to the cross. And this lady is already loving him in this extraordinary way. I'm going to ask you a question. If, if this woman who hasn't yet seen the cross, she hasn't yet seen the resurrected Christ, if she can love Jesus in such a way even before the cross, how much more can you and I love Jesus today when we're on this side of the cross looking back at it? Why does she just act? I mean, they told her, you've lost your mind. You, you are acting crazy. You are foolish. You know, why, you know why people act that way? Because Jesus says it right here. He says, therefore I tell you, this is not speaking of her, this is another event. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Hmm? When you've been forgiven much, you love much. And when you, when you think you, that there's not a whole lot, like you needed a little polishing. You were like a dirty car that needed a little cleanup. And your, and your problem was you were nothing but a big old pile of nothing that Jesus has to put together. I mean, listen, when you began to realize who you are and what Jesus is, it creates within you as one author has said, a crazy love for Jesus. If someone could love Jesus so extravagantly before the cross, again, how much more can we love him today? As I close this morning, I just want to bring some things, a few little statements to light. I want to kind of press in on us this morning uh, into our hearts a little bit. When you, if you listen, don't, don't take me at my word. You, you go do the study for yourself. You, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read the 40 some odd personal encounters that Jesus had with people. I, I think best of my research is about 40 or 41 individual encounters that Jesus has with various people in the New Testament. And most of those people had a very, um, 
Well, let's just say it this way. They didn't respond to Jesus mildly. There wasn't this mild response to Jesus. And, and I like what John Stott said in his book, Basic Christianity. He says this, we must realize that the only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely. Now, when I mean extreme, I'm not talking about people standing out on the street corner saying that people are going to you know, turn or burn, you're going to hell, all that kind of, you know, I'm not talking about, that's not the extreme that I'm talking about. If you read the Bible, you will see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and they gave their whole lives to him. That's the only way to really respond to Jesus. And Jesus calls his followers to a life of extravagant sacrifice because he gave his life. Jesus withholds nothing from us. That's why he asks everything from us. Therefore, Christianity cannot be something I say I possess. It must be something that possesses me. Christianity does not make us perfect. It puts us in the process of perfection, which means a process of change. Listen, some of you this morning may struggle with church because you don't like the snobbiness and, and the arrogance of a lot of church folks. Well, guess what? I don't either. And guess what? Jesus doesn't either. There are no perfect people in church. That's why the church is the perfect place. It, it is the place where people are in process. We are changing slowly, yes, Changing? Absolutely. That's what the gospel does. That's what Christianity does. That's what salvation does. It changes us. Sometimes slowly, and sometimes at other times more rapidly. C.S. Lewis talks about what happens when you become a Christian. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and, and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that, uh, that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Hmm? Anybody, anybody, anybody had that experience with Jesus? Well, he comes in with a wrecking ball and just starts knocking stuff out and, and, I mean, making some big changes. The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. Why? Because he comes and intends on living in it himself. So in this gathering this morning, we all find ourselves in buried situations. Some of us are hearing of, of our awful position in Christ's incredible sacrifice for the first time. And if this is true of you, then I want to encourage you to heed what the Bible says. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hear, if you hear this voice of Jesus that Matthew talks about, Come to me, all you come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus has an invitation this morning. Listen, Easter reminds us that God is for us. He is for us. He has come to rescue us. He has come to save us. And some of you for the first time this morning may realize that you need to be rescued. How do you come to him? Well, you do it by faith. What what does that mean? It means that you believe everything that Jesus says about you and everything that he says about himself. He says you're a sinner and that you and that he alone can forgive sin. He says if you will believe with everything you are that he is the king of kings and lord and lord and confess with your mouth, the Bible says you will be saved. He is inviting you into heaven's courtroom this morning not to try you as a as a criminal but to adopt you as his child. Well, I didn't think that'd get a an amen. I didn't think I'd get a witness on that, so I brought my own witness this morning. You remember the, there's two guys on, on the cross with Jesus? Jesus is in the middle. You got two other criminals on either side, and they both start out, they're cursing Jesus, you know, calling him all kinds of names. Why don't you rescue us? Why don't, you know, if you are who you say you are, why don't you come down and take us down with you? And eventually one of the guys softens towards Jesus, and all of a sudden he, 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 he sees Jesus for who he really is the Savior of the world. And Jesus says to him, what? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine what it might have been like when that guy a few hours later passes from this world and into the the afterlife? And he shows up in heaven just like Jesus said that he would. And he's standing there. And let's just say, let's use the old adage, and Peter meets him at the pearly gates. And says, hey man, why should we let you in? And the guy says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. He doesn't say, because I did this, because I did that, because I tried really hard, because I was really good, because I did a lot of good things. He, didn't say, he, he won't say anything in the first person. He'll only speak in the third person. And he'll say, the only reason that I'm here is because the man on the middle cross said that I could come. This morning, if you're going to be saved, the only, the only way a person gets saved and the only way a person will spend eternity in heaven is if you look at Jesus and say, you know what? You're the only way. If you say I can come, that's the only way I can get in. That's the only way I can be made right with God is because the man on the middle cross is still saying to us today, if you'll believe on me today, you will be with me in paradise. But listen, some of us this morning have long claimed the status, claimed Christian status, and yet find nothing akin to true Christianity within themselves. So often they have blamed those who, have, who also claim Christ and yet persist in their hypocrisy as a reason for their state. Listen to me this morning. Jesus is not going to accept that claim on the day of judgment. 
Jesus calls us to follow him and not what others are doing. Furthermore, those who claim Christian status often reject participation in Christ's church, again, because of all the hypocrites, because of all the bad in the church, because of all the fussing and the fighting in the church. But Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 5.25. Notice those words in yellow, please. Jesus died for the church. How can you love some how can you not love something and be a part of something that Christ claimed to die for? If you do not participate in God's family on earth, I don't know why you think you'll participate in it in heaven. Church membership is not a requirement or church attendance a requirement for salvation. But I want to tell you what, I've never, met, I've never met anybody that was truly born again that didn't have fellowship, membership, and participation in a local body of believers. Oh, don't get me wrong, there'll be a lot of church members that won't make it into heaven. But there won't be any non-church members that will make it into heaven. Why? Because when you are loved by Jesus and you've experienced his love, you will love what Jesus loves. And then finally, I just want to talk to those of you that consider yourself a true lover of God this morning. I just want to ask us the question, has your love grown cold? Has your love grown cold? Where's the person whose zeal for Christ once consumed you so much that it left no doubt who your first love was? Anybody ever used to tell you, hey, you need to tone it down a little bit. You need to back it down a notch or two. Has anyone said that recently? Has your love grown cold because you've forgotten his command to remember his sacrifice for your debt of sin? You see, spiritual maturity is marked by a greater understanding of our sin and an even greater understanding of the sacrifice of our Savior. At the cross is not where love for Christ begins. It's where love for Christ grows big. So there's really two groups of people in closing this morning. There are those who know Jesus, but Jesus doesn't know you. And there are those of us who know Jesus, and he knows us. But somewhere along the way, a love that really burned bright hardly burns at all. So I want to leave you with these words this morning. And I want to ask you the question that this gentleman asked a congregation some 30, 40 years ago. Do you know him? The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He is the king of righteousness and he is the king of ages. 
He is the king of heaven, he's the king of glory, and he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shorelessness. He is enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is imperially powerful, and he is impartially merciful. He is God's son. He is the center savior. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled. He's unprecedented, and he is preeminent. He has the loftiest idea in literature. He is the fundamental doctrine in true theology. He is the miracle of the age. He is the superlative of every good thing. He is the only... He's the only one able to supply all of our needs, and he supplies strength for the weak, and he, is able, and he is available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. He is the key of knowledge. He is the wellspring of wisdom. He is the doorway of deliverance. He's the gateway of glory. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. And he is the highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. And his love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. uh, His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He is incomparable. He is invincible. He is irresistible. Do you know him? The heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You cannot get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him, and you cannot live without him. The Pharisees Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death could not handle him, and the grave could not hold him. He has always been and always will be. He has no predecessor, and he will have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You cannot impeach him, and guess what? He's not going to resign. He is the master of the mighty, the captain of the conquerors, the head of heroes. He is the leader of legislatures. He is the overseer of the overcomers. He is the governor of governors. He is the prince of princes. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And I simply want to ask you this morning, do you know him? And if you don't know him, What are you going to do with him this morning? And if you do know him, are you going to do what you could do for him? David, if you will come. I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning just for a brief moment. If all of this is new to you this morning, this is something you've never heard before. It's real. It's true. You are who you say you are, and Jesus is as good as he says he is. If you don't believe that Jesus is for you, then just look at the cross one more time. He's not there because he's done anything wrong. He's there because you have done wrong. And this morning, he simply wants you to turn from yourself and with all of your heart, just 
say to him, confess to him that you are what he says you are. You're a sinner. And that he is what he says he is. He's the Savior. And ask him with your own mouth and your own words to save you and to make you his child. Yes, you are created in his image, but until you confess your sin and confess him as Savior, you are not his child until that happens. And then those of us that in this, in, in this room this morning that simply we're we, we've been playing the church game a long time. We've been walking around way away from the things of God, but yet we, we want to confess and play off ourselves as being the real deal. Listen, this is, this is not a time for fakeness and hypocrisy. Now is, now is the moment of, of truth. Now is the moment to really come clean. Jesus didn't die so that you could stay like you are. Jesus died not only to change your eternal destiny, he, he, changed, he died to change you as you are now, to begin a process of making you more like him. You're not supposed to be the same today as you were ever how long ago it was that you confessed Christ as Savior. And I just want to invite you this morning to do the same thing that I invited the person that's never heard before. Trust Christ. Confess your sin for the first time. And for the first time, ask the Lord to save you. So that you too can be his child. And then children of God, the Lord is saying to us this morning, look at this woman and look at what she did. This is what it looks to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No better time than for us on this Easter morning to, to, to ask ourselves the question, why is my love grown cold? And no better time than today to you too go before your father as his child and ask him to renew your love for him. Heavenly Father, in these next moments, I pray that you would take those who are your creation and then, and then through their confession of their sin and their confession of you as Savior, you would make them into your child. And then those that are your children that this morning, that we would begin afresh and anew with loving you in the way that you deserve to be loved in Christ's name. I'm going to ask you to stand. I ask you, if you will, to join us in one more.